This episode is brought to you by Get Mobile ID by Get Group North America, the smart choice for ID implementations. Put citizens in control with Get Mobile ID, fully ISO compliant 18013-5, and surpasses AMVA guidelines. Learn more at getgroupna.com. Welcome to AMVACAST, bringing news, information, and expertise to the AMVA community. Here's your host, Ian Grossman. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the AMVACAST, everyone. This week, I am welcoming a return guest to the AMVACAST, Sean Cashin. Sean is AMVA's Director of Government Affairs. Welcome back, Sean. Well, thank you, Ian. It's a pleasure to be here, and congratulations on the success of the AMVACAST. Oh, thanks. Yes, we are up well well past 20,000 downloads and that doesn't even account for people who listen without downloading or subscribing. So we we have uh, quite a audience. I got to say it's a little bit unexpected. I mean, we went into this experiment early on in the pandemic. And we said, let's just put this out there and see what sticks. And we've really been overwhelmed by not only the following, but the kind comments we receive from people seem to be enjoying the episodes. Well, that's great. I always listen, and I think you guys do a fantastic job. Well, I appreciate that. I Not having you on just for my ego, though it's always well appreciated <laughs> to, to hear that. You're always good for that. Uh, but I thought it was a good time to maybe do a check-in. We're heading into summer. Theoretically, Congress should go into a summer recess. So certainly we'll be all going home soon for campaigns as it'll high, you know, hit high election season soon. So we thought it would be a good chance to check in and see what's recently come out of this Congress that maybe our members know about, maybe they don't know about, some things we've sent alerts to them about, some things we're tracking a little bit on the down low. I just wanted to have a conversation to see, hey, what what have you been seeing, what have you been watching that maybe members should know about? So let, let's just jump in anywhere and on any topic. If I was to say, what's something Congress has been really fooling around with, for lack of a better phrase, that might sort of touch our members that maybe we haven't talked as much about. Sure. So I think there's a, I think you did a great job of pr- providing a little bit of a segue here. First and foremost, I would say in the transportation sector, we always have to be cognizant of the fact that we just passed one of the biggest bills in the history of infrastructure investment through the Infrastructure Investment mm-hmm. and Jobs Act. Uh, and so while that bill was passed, obviously, you know, before the beginning of last year, Uh, What we're going to see is a lot of the implementation efforts on the back end of that. Uh, But I think more to your question was the fact of what are we going to see that's new and unexpected. And I think uh, as we head into the midterms, uh, we're going to see a very narrow path for things to get through Mm. uh, the congressional, especially the Senate calendar uh, in the the following couple of months. So there might be a lot of proposals floating about, but the reality of something really going through, slim to none. It is, but you know, you always have to put that in the context of the fact that people are preparing their agenda mm-hmm. for the next session. Uh, so we're seeing a lot of proposals, uh, but before we jump into some of those proposals, I think it's a good idea to just remind people that there is still time left on this clock. Mm. And what they're looking at in a lot of ways that are impactful to the AMVA membership are things like uh, data. Uh, they're doing a lot in both the cybersecurity space and they're doing things in the privacy space. Both of those are traditional ways that AMVA as an organization has been very involved, uh, but even more so our members are continuing to be involved in that sector as well. Mm -hmm. So it's important for us to know that we've seen a lot of proposals on the privacy side, whether they're you know, public sector data breach requirements or their protections of data. Uh, what we're seeing is kind of a last ditch effort in that space uh, in a bipartisan privacy bill that really has been uh, a boon to us and our membership in a lot of different ways. And the most uh, 
specific example I can give is that the languages have been broadened out. I think we saw some proposals early on that mm -hmm. would have been very specific to our core membership and DMV data in particular. Uh, through the process of what we do when we make laws, uh, some of the things that were specific to the DPPA were a bit railroaded. Uh, and what we ended up with was more broad language uh, that was really a boon to our membership in, in the way that it approaches um, privacy in a more global sense. So we're not getting restrictions on DMV data specifically. We're getting restrictions on how people use data globally, specific to the private sector, which really leaves uh, the traditional way we conduct business kind of to the side and off the off limits. Because it's it either calls it out or leaves it alone in terms of the traditional way that public agencies share data with each other, law enforcement agencies access DMV data. Early on, there were some questions in that space, but you're seeing now the the more recent iterations of the bill there's less of a threat to a change of, of any operational impact there. That That's correct. What we saw in the bipartisan measure was actually they, they decided to kind of expand their scope and they did some carve-outs. Some of those carve-outs were specific to the public safety sector, which obviously our DMV mm -hmm. members operate in. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, those broader carve-outs were really helpful in ensuring we can continue to do the good safety work we do without restrictions on how we do that in interstate exchanges of that data. So there's still work to be done on that bill. I'm Continuing to have those mm -hmm. conversations, uh, but I do think it was a benefit to our membership to say, hey, we realize the importance of what you're doing. We're going to leave that alone and we're going to let you conduct business as usual while we continue to define the privacy space more globally. Yeah. Okay. Great. So moving on from data, what's uh, some of the other trends that you've seen in this Congress? Well, I think the, a lot of trends are still going to be back in the transportation space. I think yeah. there's still some refinement to be done around how we're going to move forward, especially specifically to... Uh, some of the transportation finance aspects. Mm. Uh, what we saw through IAJA was really a, a true return to some of the conversations we've had on almost a cyclical basis mm -hmm. about how we're going to continue to fund transportation in the future. Obviously, we've seen a huge investment in the electrical and energy side of what the future of transportation looks like. Uh, so as that continues to take shape, I think we're going to see less of a reliance on the gas tax, mm -hmm. which means there's going to be impacts for the AMVA membership in one way or another. There's going to be be a new financial mechanism for our members, for the states, as they try and find out a way to pay for their infrastructure. And all of that, again, comes back to the same thing we've been discussing, which is data. Right. Uh, so that's the role I think that we need to be both cognizant of moving forward and to ensure that we have a seat at the table when those discussions take shape. Are you still seeing congressional interest in road use charge, mileage-based user fees as that key alternative? I do, uh, but what that looks like uh, can take many different shapes, right? Mm -hmm. It can be either, you know, we're going to use technology to solve that solution, or we can go a little bit more archaic and we can say, hey, we want people to self-report what miles they're driving. Um, but either way, there's going to be a role for the DMVs, for AMVA, for right. other people. And what we really need to do, and I think this is where the conversation is for me, is to remind people that we need to understand what the minimum data requirements are going to be for mm -hmm. that type of a program so that we can define that and kind of establish the program building out from there. Yeah. So, well, you know, you referenced the infrastructure bill a couple of times and how it's moving into implementation. And I know that the congressional work is kind of done on the bill and now it's being handed off to agencies. This bill, compared to the more recent authorization bills, seems to have had less of the fanfare, 
Is that safe to say? I feel like it was, it was a big bill. <laughs> We're hearing from federal agencies they have access to significant funds right now, mm-hmm. but there doesn't seem to be the buzz about it the way some of the previous authorization bills had. Maybe that's because of the noise of the pandemic and the other global challenges you know the country faces right now, uh, or is it something more? I think it's a little combination of both. I think what happened was there was a lot of fanfare when you saw the price tags for the early versions of the bill, but that was whittled down Mm -hmm. throughout the congressional process. So I think there was a little bit of um, apathy when the final bill came Mm -hmm. out because you had been so uh, involved in, in these high numbers. And, you know, it almost came to a point where it was tiresome to hear about the same things over and over and over again. And then when it finally came out, uh, you were just kind of like, oh, well, that's, you know, wonderful. But what does that mean for me? And I think that's one part of it. I think the other part of it is it was not what we would usually see in terms of a very narrow and regulatory embodied focus for the bill. Hmm. I think it was a little bit more of a global bill. And there's a lot more work to be done on the implementation side than maybe some of the focal efforts of the past reauthorization. So I think the scope lended itself to not only being so nebulous that people couldn't really grasp what it meant in terms of investment. And also, I think that there's still a lot of work to be done on the regulatory side that'll make some of those things that were included in the legislation come to pass maybe further down the road and people start seeing those real-time impacts to what they're doing. Are there any specific rulemakings that we might expect out of federal agencies that are more directly related to what our members do, or is most of that operational work more on, say, the federal highway side where they have to now divvy out the funding for the infrastructure? Sure. Well, no matter what bill it is, there's always something for our members to be interested in. I think the IAJA was certainly another example of that. I would certainly say we've already seen some of it, which is pretty interesting given, you know, the bill's not that old for regulatory Mm -hmm. work to be undertaken. Uh, But we saw a state inspection of passenger carrying motor vehicles. That that rulemaking already came out, and that was included in this bill. Mm. Uh, We see things like the apprenticeship pilot program for 18 to 21 year old drivers taking shape. That's something that's already being considered. For commercial drivers. That's right. I apologize for commercial drivers. Yep. Uh, And we see a a bunch of other measures that are included in there, whether they be grant programs for uh, the Grant programs for the uh, impaired driving. So you have uh, grant programs that incentivize the sharing of data between federal and state entities. Mm. You also see grant programs for something we've seen in past reauthorizations, which is the recall process. Mm -hmm. Um, They're still Mm -hmm. trying to incentivize the ability for our members to notify people of open recalls at the time of vehicle registration. Uh, I know we've had a couple of members intrigued with that opportunity. Um, For our standpoint as AMVA, an organization, we've tried to remind uh, the cognizant agencies that there's issues about the reporting side of satisfaction of those recalls. That's not really where they are with this bill. They're just trying to provide money for states to kind of continue any good work they can do in that space and and try and get folks to be aware of whether or not there's a recall on their car. Okay. So I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit on the previous one, the impaired drive grant program. You mentioned data sharing between federal and state. Putting you on the spot on how much your memory recalls, can you tell us more about that? And the reason why I ask is our members continue to have a conversation around um, sharing data around convictions of impaired driving and ignition interlock requirements mm-hmm. and conversations around ignition interlock reciprocity, which we don't have universally right now. Is that the type of data sharing that this grant program could potentially support, or am I 
mixing things that don't mix. No, I don't think anything's really off the table when it comes to impaired driving. I think that when you look at what the bill's trying to do is just really in, in, encourage the conduit to take shape on its own. What works mm -hmm. for states may work for certain states and not others. And what we saw, I think, at, at a larger level with this bill was them saying, you know, we've realized there are issues, whether it's in your ability to qualify for certain grant programs or what's considered a national priority safety grant program. Mm -hmm. uh, they really took a step back and tried to focus more on the development of state-specific plans that focus on what targets they feel are most appropriate. So whether it's the expansion of the timeframes for submitting uh, your state highway safety plan from two, two years to three years, mm -hmm. or the performance targets you put into those plans, uh, I think they're trying to say, we're trying to provide you both with flexibility and the ability to meet performance metrics. Uh, so I think to your question, there's more flexibility for all of these programs, as long as they're a detailed component of what's submitted from the states to the federal agencies. So right. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Yeah. And I think what you recommended would be one of those areas that they might have a carve out or they might be able to be willing to work with the states on. Interesting. Okay. So w moving beyond the infrastructure bill and the other topics you mentioned, any other themes coming out of proposed bills now or buzz you're hearing around topics that we might see in the, the, the next Congress? And certainly if, um, you know, I, I'm not here to predict what will happen in elections, <laughs> but if there were to be uh, leadership changes, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that could be, it could be more, gridlock or it could be the opportunity for for moving bills only time will tell sure but thematically the topics are probably going to continue to grow organically they will and i'll say that you know it's interesting to me as we come through the tail end of covid that there was so much you know, discussion around supply chain issues mm. through COVID. Yes. So uh, what I've seen over the course of the past few months is people using that as an opportunity to really get transportation and economically significant uh, legislation put on the tail end of some of those supply chain bills. Uh, so uh, for our membership, you would see things like uh, the ability to make some of those emergency exemptions permanent. Mm -hmm. uh, that's been included in some of the supply chain issue bills. Uh, and I think the throughput on processing of CDLs is going to continue to be an issue mm -hmm. uh, for Congress. Uh, they understand that there's a lot that goes into that, whether they be workforce and labor issues, or they be retention issues, or they be the, the role of the DMV in that whole aspect. They're looking at all of that. So I think we'll see a renewed focus on that next session, no matter who comes out the winner of the midterms. Yeah. Um, and I think that that'll continue to be an opportunity for industry to look at those bills and say, where can we make improvements in that process? Now, that, that's been an area of frustration for many of our members where the known challenge of driver shortage um, and this idea that the industry can point to the CDL process as somehow a considerable barrier in driver shortage. And you, we, and you in particular, spent a lot of time trying to educate congressional leaders and policymakers that that's it's almost a red herring that the CDL process and the output of CDL applicants is not a significant factor in this driver shortage conversation. That's right. And, you know, it's been helpful to have statistics that help us make that mm -hmm. discussion point. Uh, obviously, there was a little bit of a downtick uh, at the beginning of COVID as we all redefined our business plans. But, you know, the, the CDL processing rate has been exponentially higher on the back end of that. And, and the issue is really not one of 
uh, always getting people through that process. It's getting people to remain in the seats that they've taken uh, for a long time. So there's a lot that goes into that discussion. I just wanted to make sure members were aware that it's a conversation that will continue well into the next congressional session. What kind of reaction do you get from the Hill when you bring them that information? Because I suspect they, they come to us with this preconceived notion of the states aren't doing enough, the DMVs aren't doing enough to get licenses into drivers' hands, and we give them the data, and we show them you know these issues. What, what type of reaction do you get at that point? Uh, it's always interesting to me because it's almost as if the, the expectation is that nobody fails the tests, right? So the, it's mm. a bit of a surprise. It's that, oh, uh, we need applicants. Not really we need applicants, we need drivers. And what's standing in the way of the drivers driving is their ability to drive safely and prove that they can drive safely. So it's a reminder that even if you have applicants, not everyone's going to get through that process. And that's due to the fact that we're checking people for safe operation. And that's a good thing. If, right. if, if we were just handing these things out, we'd have different problems on our hands. But it's always interesting to me see that that's not always the expectation. And the reminder mm. needs to be said over and over again is the fact that this just because you apply for something doesn't mean that it's a, it's a given. Right. Yeah. That we're checking for those safety critical skills. And then at the same time that there isn't this backlog across the country that perhaps some special interests have made some folks on the Hill want to believe that there's this backlog of processing. Yeah, that's right. And it's funny because you can always see a little bit of the issue oriented uh, people that are taking these issues to Congress because mm -hmm. there will be carve outs for specific classes of operators. And you'll know where those are coming from, from mm -hmm. different folks, because mm -hmm. uh, they're looking for. Uh, a little bit of an easier time getting through that process specific to their specific trade. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I would say, well, we'll end this part of it with me giving a little plug for, for folks to go out and watch something else. If you really want to know what's um, contributing to the driver shortage, go on and Google John Oliver last week tonight, CDL driver shortage. He did an excellent expose piece on it a couple of months ago, um, but I'm sure it's still out there in internet land for people to watch. Yeah. So well, what else? Let's move on from, from the driver shortage to some other topics you're hearing. Sure. So I, I will say I think it's important right now to keep in mind uh, kind of uh, a more of a global perspective than perhaps we've dealt with in the past. Okay. And I bring that in in you know, some some outliers to what's usually considered the transportation sector, which we're, we're heavily involved in. Um, so uh, specifically, we've had some rulings from the Supreme Court that have really returned a lot of authority to the states where mm -hmm. there had been precedent in the past. Uh, so I think it would be important to realize that there's going to always be a response to those types of things legislatively. Mm. The whole reason we have checks and balances in this country is to try and find that happy medium between one exertion of authority over another. And so I think you will see legislative work being done uh, that's kind of a give and take between federal authority and state authority. So obviously the justices have done some work that are returning authority to the states. Uh, that's great, but that also usually leads to litigation in some form or fashion. Sure. And I think what you'll see is some work by the legislature to try and move that needle back to where federal authority can solve some of those issues, if you will. So uh, it may not be transportation sector related now, uh, but state authority in general can be both helpful and problematic, yeah. depending on what you're dealing with. And I think a natural reaction is to expect uh, some more legislating being done after the midterms. Yeah. 
So we've mentioned the midterms a couple of times, which is also a good reminder that there are a number of our members who are intimately involved in the election process, whether or not it's a uh, motor vehicle that's part of a Secretary of State's office, or still just the fundamental connection between the DMV licensing process and voter registration. Mm -hmm. Number of jurisdictions now that have voter ID laws, and we have members that are involved with that. Anything in that space that this might be a good opportunity as a reminder for members to know about, be aware of as we're going into that season yet again. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's always a very important aspect to remember because it's the only place where, you know, our membership is heavily involved in what's considered a constitutional right rather than, you know, a privilege or anything else. So uh, it's important to really be aware and have good discussions with your in-state elections offices in the lead up. Uh, to the election so you know what's going to be expected of you in terms of uh, you know discipline in the voter rolls uh, the exchange of data between your office and the voting office uh, and you know anticipate any changes or problems that may occur as a result of what happens every year during an election season mm -hmm. so uh, it, those are all very important things to consider I would say there's no lack of activity in this space from the federal congressional side uh, there's been a plethora of proposals that cover every part of the election process and all of them come back at some point or another to the common theme of the day between you and I which is data mm. uh, they want to make sure that the people that are voting are people that are authorized to vote uh, they want to make sure that they have a good contact list for uh, any questions about voting practice uh, there's they're looking into automatic voter requirements in states uh, they're they're doing just about everything you can think of under the sun, including voter ID. And you know, I think it's a good segue to remember we even had a bill in this session that was asking all states to have citizenship reported as a required component data field of real ID. So uh, all of that leads back to the same question of how close scrutiny will be around this election, given uh, all that we've heard in the last few years. Uh, about there being the potential for fraud in any election, I would just say uh, it's going to be something that rears its head again in this midterm election cycle. And uh, the more work you can do proactively on this front, probably the better. Allegations of, though no, not <laughs> actual fraud, let's be clear about Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Um, but in those bills that you were referencing, to be clear, none of that actually moved, none of it's been made into law in terms of any member listening thinking they need to do something different because of federal action regarding voting or elections nothing has actually happened that's correct yeah there were plenty of proposals that were all over the board but none of them were finalized into law yeah so one of the last times you were on, uh, a big focus was Real ID modernization. Mm -hmm. It was a big success. It was a great bill that we were pleased with. And we're still sitting and waiting for rulemakings. That's right. Um, those folks that are out there, you know, wondering what happened? Did it go into a black hole? Is there any other than I know the answer we get from DHS, which is they're working on it. Sure. Um, I guess maybe summarize and confirm for our members that there are two rulemakings we're still waiting on. That's correct. Yeah. So the the more they're they're both very important, and I would actually uh, put a plug in here for everyone who's attending our AAC to s sit down with the Real ID Program Office uh, as they're available mm -hmm. uh, for our AIC. But um, yes, there are two rulemakings that we're still waiting on. You know, I think the one that I'm most anticipating is going to be the remote processing rule, and mm -hmm. I think uh, I've heard good news about that. I don't want to get in front of DHS and any sure. announcement from them, uh, but. 
Uh, it is moving along. I think one of the issues is always when they're undertaking something that's considered significant or, you know, uh, an internal DHS rulemaking priority. Uh, they're not allowed to talk about it, so we don't have a lot on that. Mm -hmm. We just know that it's forthcoming, and I would say everyone should stay tuned, uh, and we'll have some more news for them in short order. Okay. And the other rulemaking? Uh, the other rulemaking, I already mentioned the remote processing. The other rulemaking is going to be on... MDL acceptance for Real ID, I believe. Yeah, yeah. yes. Uh, that's the screening rule, and that's going to be actually of great, just as much import. Uh, you're going to have people where the MDL will be a acceptable document for TSA screening, which is great. So, yeah, I think our members are excited about both uh, Real, I Real ID rules and will be, uh, and certainly we at ANVA will make folks aware of them as soon as they are released. Yes, and uh, I, again, would share that I, I think that they're imminent, so stay tuned. Great. Anything else that we've not touched on, Sean, when I said, hey, let's just chat about what's been going on in the Hill and federal agencies of note. Um, we really didn't have an agenda for this. I said, let's just chat, and you've met the challenge quite well, but I want to make sure there wasn't anything else on your mind. No, there's not really anything else on my mind. I would just say that, again, as people kind of set the legislative table for the next session, uh, it's always important to make sure you're aware of what the changes from the last session were. And yeah. again, whether that's IAJA or our members' involvement with their own in-state state highway safety plan, I think those are both huge input areas that people need to be both in, engaged with and aware of so that uh, you know any of this huge amount of money that's being thrown through uh, IAJA lands uh, both as an opportunity for your offices and for the ability to shape kind of the public safety uh, landscape for, for our members in the years to come. Yeah. And all of you that are listening, if you have any questions about anything that's happening on the Hill or at federal agencies that AMVA is involved with, Sean is always available to take your call, answer your email, give you our insight. Or if you're hearing something and you're not sure we know about it, please send it along. Um, you know, we, we love that intel and we love hearing from you. So, Sean, thanks for joining me today again. And, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Thanks to our producers, Claire Jeffrey and Chelsea Hadwin. Thanks you all for listening. And until next week, everyone, stay well. Thank you for joining us for AmbaCast, hosted by Ian Grossman, produced by Claire Jeffrey and Chelsea Hadwin, music by Gibson Arthur. This episode was brought to you by Get Mobile ID by Get Group North America. Visit us at amvacast.podbean.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify.